0: Graphic Nature acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to the elders past, present and future and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. A particular
1: tale can come to life in the mind of a reader it is endlessly fascinating to me.
0: We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents them. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. will be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers and people behind the printed pages and digital screens pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode we have comics maker of Hometown and co-founder of Milk Tooth School of Art and Stories with Elizabeth Marufo Campbell White. <laughs> Thanks very much for being on the show mate. How are you?
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm calling from Perth, Western Australia. Just want to uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm on, the Wadjuk Noongar people and pay my respect to elders past and present.
0: Now Campbell, let's start off from the start. How did uh, how did you how did you get into comics? So how did you get into creating comics? Was it a was it a were you a reader from a young age or was it you know, you knew nothing about comics, but you were always uh, into drawing or writing. How did it come about for you?
1: Well, the first comic I remember reading was Calvin and Hobbes. And I remember reading it in, it was in my parents' uh, kind of living room when I was a child. I must have been maybe eight or, or younger. And um, I remember it was the middle of summer and it was hot and it was summer holidays. And, and it was the coolest room in the house. And I remember laying... You know on the floor just kind of looking at their bookshelf and going through and uh there was a volume of calvin and Hobbes that they had there and i pulled it down and and started flipping through it and inside it there was sort of this inscription that was uh dedicated to my mother and it was sort of saying you know to karen uh good luck with your own calvin uh you know and and it was sort of a gift to her when i was born that's cool so yeah i know so i kind of read this book and i was like oh my goodness this is like a book about me and (laughs) you know and i just fell in love with it and and to 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 this day calvin and Hobbes is sort of like the, the high watermark of of comics achievements in in my eyes i think it's just a really remarkable remarkable text and so that's where i really fell in love with comics
0: I must say that I'm a huge fan of Calvin and Hobbes. I, I, I'm, I'm surprised, or Hobbes, I should say, I'm I'm still surprised how much of a kick and a laugh I get out of reading it.
1: Oh, definitely. And and my son, who's 12, has has loved it since he was, you know, about the same age I was. And he's, you know, he'll pull pull the volumes off the shelf and, and sit there chortling away at them and, you know, want to show me a strip and then I'll have a read of it. And they're, they're still hilarious and they're profound and they're deep and they're very emotive and... I think they, they just it covers so much ground in such sensitive, clever, playful ways, that it's so remarkable.
0: It it, it really is. I I've got one. Where is it? I think it's at work. Uh, I believe I believe that the one strip I'm thinking of, which was just uh, Calvin and Hobbes just sitting on a on a hill, overlooking a sunset, and and it was I I can't remember exactly the context or the the day that it was released, and I I I. I I want to think that it was around about the Charlie Hebdo um, time when, when, when the cartoonists were shot uh, mm. by the terrorist, but I can't remember, but it was, um, it had, it was, it was such, it was so, as you say, you know, rightly so, uh, how profound that, that, that strip can be. Like it's remarkable just how, and, and particularly in different points of history, um, whether it be you know the last couple of years or even ten years ago, you know how it, you, you know you, you, I mean mind you, you, you put it succinctly. It, it's just it's by far uh, one of the best strips with dealing with such a, a a huge range of um of different subject matter.
1: Yeah, and I think I think it actually really holds up as as a larger reading experience. I think a lot of gag strips, you know, are great in isolation. But my experience with Calvin and Hobbes primarily was in collected volumes. So I always kind of perceived and understood and engaged with them as, as like works of, of, of a year, I guess. Yeah. And because the strip is so engaged with nature and the environment and seasons, you know, like each volume was sort of a, a year in the life of Calvin almost, although there wasn't sort of a strict... uh, strict chronology, Mm -hmm. but you you could, I always engaged with them like that. So they, they read as like a longer form narrative and, you know, Watterson would have these strips and storylines that would run over weeks, um, which kind of reinforced that uh, when there was kind of the transmogrify, whenever the box came out, the cardboard box, there'd be this ongoing, you know, storylines that were quite long. And, um, and I think that I always read them as long form works in in a, in a, in a way and I think, I think they really hold together like that. Yeah.
0: Where to after uh, reading Calvin and Hobbes on the uh, on the lounge room floor?
1: Yeah. So after that, it was definitely superhero thing, superhero comics from the newsagent. That's that's really I've got really strong memories of that. You know, going going to the corner store, then going to the newsagent and and getting primarily issues of Spider Man. There'd be X Men. There was like Generation X. I was a huge fan of. So that was just starting when yep. I was. Um, reading newsstand comics with Chris Pachalo's art. And, uh, you know, that just blew me away. And so I really became engaged with that. And that for a period of time was really where I wanted to go with my comics making. Then after that, I really, I guess at the same time, I was probably engaged somewhat with Tintin and Asterix from either the school library or the local libraries. And then probably in late primary school, I started getting into manga very heavily because uh, for whatever reason, my local local council library had an incredible manga collection at the time, which we're talking probably mid-90s or uh, yeah, even earlier, a little bit earlier, early 90s, which was kind of unusual maybe. And so we had huge amounts of like Rumiko Takahashi's Meisunokoku and, and her LUM series and Ranma Half. So the classics, the classics. The classics, yeah. 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 And then, you know, we had volumes of Akira, volumes of um, Domu, uh, they had complete Sandman run, which isn't manga, but that that opened up like a kind of a really different world of comics to me. And Takahashi had a huge impact on like what could be comics. Um, Meo Sonokoku is just like a kind of a slice of life apartment living romance story. And yeah. that it was something I'd never seen in a comic before. So that was really interesting. And, you know, switching, I guess, switching between, newspaper, newsstand um, superhero stuff from Marvel and DC to that, it's like, oh, stories can be anything. Like these comics can be anything. It doesn't have to be a gag strip or superhero work. There's actually all these other areas. And, um, yeah, that, that that collection had a really profound impact on me.
0: Yeah, that, I, I must say that I loved all the Japanese animation as a kid, mm. but I never, I, I never actually crossed over and got a lot of the manga comics. And I don't... I don't know if it was just originally uh, the the art for me. I think was mm. the issue. The, the, the all the superhero stuff is basically a, a gateway drug, and then once you find you know the, all these other stories, uh, you know it, it's it's a completely different thing. And for me, the two the two stories that blew me away, uh, Concrete by Paul Chadwick, oh yeah, yeah, and um, Too Much Coffee Man by uh, <laughs> Shannon Wheeler, yeah, uh, those two books is what kind of opened my eyes to what else was out there uh, particularly particularly the idea of a of a you know, accountant becoming a huge rock man and all he wanted to do was buy art and um, sit on mountaintops and I just thought that was I uh, still to this day uh, you know when I recall those stories I still get goosebumps because it's such such the concept behind it was what really you know really expanded my my desire for for different types of stories
1: yeah yeah that's awesome and it's it's really always interesting to hear what what opens people's you know mind to to the different possibilities because sometimes you'll encounter a a work and and it is different or outside your sort of scope of understanding and and you can't engage with it for whatever reason whether it's come at the it's met you at the wrong time or it's you know never going to be right for you or it's not very good but then you have those kind of transcendent experiences like you're saying with concrete where you go, Oh my goodness. And you know, concrete's fantastic because it's, you know, it's the thing, you know, it's the Fantastic Four is the thing. And it's like, what if he was, you know, just this kind of other kind of person yeah. that it happened to, you know? Yeah. And what if we told these kind of quite strange emotive stories yeah. that are a little bit kind of haunting or unusual and not downbeat, but yeah, the registers completely different. And and I, th- I always think that's kind of interesting when you take these formats that we're perhaps familiar with, all these genres or these story tropes, and you just change the register a little bit, and the reading experience becomes completely different. You know?
0: mm, mm, absolutely. One of the other stories I think that really blew my mind was the Coffin by Phil Hester, and that was I think that was the early two thousands, might have even been late nineties. It was a four issue miniseries, and now when I think about, and it, now it's different because I've got my own cause I've got my own child, but back then as a as a you know. Early twenties, more on, uh, you know, reading that book had it really did have a profound effect, and I still talk about that book. I thought I still think I haven't read it in a long time, but I still think that was one of the best comics I've ever read. Ever wow. read? It's basically a, a scientist who's working on a project who is developing uh, a suit that can contain people's souls, and th- his whole motivation is to. Um, his whole motivation was to, to make his young daughter who died live on.
1: And, oh wow! Yeah, yeah, but
0: but the but a corporation obviously is involved, and and the corporation has you know uh, people who want it for nefarious reasons, and then there's this struggle. But you know this this you know mild mannered scientist who is then you know it's essentially fish out of water kind of story, but it's it's such a it's the way it explores death. I thought was, was amazing. And, yeah, um, wow.
1: and Cause that's sort of the Astro boy story as well, isn't it? Well, yeah. Like Astro boy is all about, yeah. that sort of trying to, can you, can you through technology reanimate a lost child, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It becomes, yeah. 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 Cool. I have yeah. to check it out. I just looked up the cover for it and I totally recognize seeing the cover everywhere, but I haven't read it myself.
0: Yeah. It's been around. I think there's like a special edition that was released a few years back and, uh, but it was just, it was on no one's radar for such a long time. And I kept talking to people about it and they're going, what, <laughs> what? And, and I don't know whether that, that kind of added to the reason why I love it so much, but, but yeah, the, the, those, those formative books, you know, the, the ones that really just come, come out of nowhere and, you know, in you. You know, whether you're trying for a whim or whatnot, they're the one, you know, I, they tend, they tend to be the ones that I hold on to for the longest time. Yeah.
1: And, well, they have the biggest impact. They have sort of a transformative impact on the way you understand the medium and engage with it. And, you know, you have to completely recalibrate all of your bearings, you know, yeah. <laughs> and everything you understand. And that's why they have such an impact. You know, nice, solid bit, bit of genre work is always really lovely and pleasant to read. But, but these sort of transformative works are the ones that, you yeah, know, change who we are and, and how we understand things. Yeah.
0: So with, with saying all of that, you, you've, you've gone through, you, you've soaked up all, all this manga and you've, you've been checking out all the, all the Marvel and they all the usual fare. Uh Where's the, what's the timeline of you starting to think, Hey, you know what, maybe, maybe I can do this myself.
1: Yeah. So I, I you know, I was, I, I, I just draw compulsively. So, so there was, there's just weird archives of, strange works in in the shed and it starts small and there's small by the time I'm wanting to make comics and try and dipping my toe in the works are kind of a little bit shorter and more experimental and maybe indie comics-esque and so I'm making little zines and things and mini comics and strange works here and there just kind of cutting my teeth and, and not really necessarily sharing them very much or, mm-hmm. or very well and then The like home time came into being not fully formed but as as like a huge project in my head as you know as something I wanted to pursue and so after high school I I went to university and at the time there there wasn't really an illustration degree or definitely not a comics degree that I could do in Perth and so I went to art school and um, majored in painting and minored in drawing uh, because I figured oh look you know I'll be able to make comics I'll be able to make artwork and might pick up some new skills and, and it's at least it's keeping me sort of on track. Yeah. And during that time, I really fell in love with the contemporary art world. And that's where I met my wife, Elizabeth Marufo, who I run the kids art school with. And, you know, we both were heavily engaged in the contemporary art world for a long time. And it kind of got to the point I was making, trying to make comics on the side as well and, and juggle a few balls. And yeah, I kind of hit a point where I had to decide, well, which one do I really wanna do? And it, you know, there's no external pressure because of that. You know, forcing me to pick. There's yeah. No, there was no, there was no financial pressure forcing me to pick because neither of them really make much money. <laughs> um, no, we
0: were, it, I was going to bring that up, but you know what? We can just sidestep that whole section.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and and so it's sort of like uh, what I, what I really like to do is, I guess, tell stories and and sit in my studio and, and draw. And I, I found the contemporary art world a little bit. Challenging to navigate and a little bit stressful, <laughs> to say the least. Fair enough. And so it was like, okay, it, it's comics then. And and I had this project brewing, which was Home Time, and that came about really when uh, Elizabeth and I were in San Francisco, and the Har- We were living in this big uh, share house in the Mission District with maybe sixteen other artists and all sorts of folks like. Well, that would have Circus been far person. out. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. It was quite amazing. And, you know, there were circus folk and independent journalists and, like, sound healers. And it was just a whole mixed bag. But the vast majority of the house were really obsessed with Harry Potter mm-hmm. at the time. And um, this was when the last book was due to be released. And the whole house had sort of ordered their copies on. This was this was simpler times. So we ordered these Harry Potter books on Amazon. <laughs> and they, they all arrived. You know, there was an embargo date. And they all arrived at, to our place at, in the morning. And they were all in. This was really quite lovely. Boxes that were shaped like owls, so it was like an owl delivery. Yeah, or they well, they I should I shouldn't say shaped. They were printed with owls. (laughs) They looked like it looked like an owl. Yeah, right. Which was unexpected and quite delightful. And and we all sort of just had this, we all went back to our rooms and, and read the books and then had a house meeting about, you know, what do we think? And we'd, we'd had a bets on what was going to happen and et cetera, et cetera. So the house was all in a, in a flurry and it was really great. But afterwards I was really kind of reflecting on, well, why? You know, why is this, why did this capture my attention? Why was this such a focus? Why did I get so drawn into this world? And, you know, especially because it's such a, you know, it's such a, specifically British story like it it is it's so drenched in in England and that specificity I think is its strength you know that's one of its strengths but for someone who's never lived in England and and you know on this colonial continent it's like well why am I feeling this affinity or what's what's interesting here and what would this sort of a story look like if it was in Australia you know or or from an australian landscape or from an australian world mm-hmm. and and that was sort of the seed of the idea of like how would how would a work like this potentially sort of exist and and what would it be shaped and look like so you know i i envisioned this and started developing this as a comics project and initially it was huge initially it was like much bigger oh cuz so, cuz home, <laughs> home
0: time and home time too aren't big enough
1: no well well you know the, and this is the this is the this is the sort of um, naivety or, of, of someone who's never really made a long-form comic before. So, Hometime 1 and 2 are really one book. It's one story. And we split in two because of size and time, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. But initially, it was going to be three trilogies. So, nine books, <laughs> if you can imagine. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I'll get these done. Nine books, that's cool. <laughs> and then I started kind of drafting it up. And I was like, mm. I could probably do three, and then I started getting a better sense. I was like, I can do one, and so I compressed <laughs> basically the first trilogy down into one one arc, and yeah, and then started just working into it, and and it was it was difficult. <laughs> it
0: would have it would have been nice if you had a, a like a really wealthy benefactor, and you could have just doled out the stories and gotten a whole bunch of people to do the stories. Then you would have had your
1: trilogy of trilogies. Oh, look, I would love that. I would, uh, you know, I think that'd be fantastic. I think Home Time's almost set up for that with the different art styles with each chapter and things like that. You could get, you know, different Australian artists to, to, you know, do a different chapter and... Get it done really quick, <laughs> you know. If I had the money, <laughs> well, yeah.
0: If we yeah, all had if the money,
1: publisher wants to fund it. Go for it. Be great. <laughs> well, I'll see
0: if I can uh, push this podcast out to to all yeah. the different publishers on the world, and we'll see. Maybe, maybe, maybe someone from the uh, Belgium, yeah, some, maybe someone from Belgium. Who knows? Yeah, you know.
1: Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? England. Uh, There's possibilities. We just need the money. We yes. just need the money. It's <laughs> all
0: about money in the end, isn't it? Sadly, sadly true. So you've cut it down to, to the two volumes, but essentially just the one story. How were you deciding what you were taking out and, and what was a better part of the story? What was that process like?
1: Yeah, that process. So the three trilogies were intended to be set over three kind of time periods. So the first trilogy was going to be the children at sort of 12 to you know, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. And then the second one was sort of a high school trilogy i guess and then the third one was going to be them kind of as young adults yeah and so the first thing i did was just they're just kids like it's just going to be them as kids and then with the trilogy of the kids it was sort of just about picking the best stuff and squashing it down and and cutting so each each volume was going to be a different sort of adventure a different region that they're exploring of this land and a different sort of group that they So the first the first the the main sort of antagonists are these lizards in home time but then the second one is going to have a different sort of antagonist and right. the third one a different one so so i just cut the other two and just compressed story arcs down much more and um and just got it done that way basically and you know elizabeth marifo my wife she's she's an incredible like artist and storyteller and you know she doesn't come from a comics background so that was something that was really essential for me was to, or really essential in the development of, of it was having someone who's outside of comics be able to give their feedback and and their understanding of it as I guess an outsider yeah. um, to kind of look at it and go I don't understand this or this isn't fun or this this is this bit isn't good enough or I don't like the art here or but you know coming from a really well intentioned a really it, educated um, it, perspective it, of just like oh. Uh, if, if I picked this up and I didn't know what it was, this doesn't make the cut. And so it's sort of like that was a great calibration for me. Yeah.
0: I would say that makes total total sense.
1: Yeah, so, so she's been essential. And even, you know, when I was first making the comic, I kind of did this, not a rookie mistake, but I just jumped in and I was like, I'll just illustrate the first chapter. So like 30 pages, I'll just dive in and, and I'll, I'll get it done. And I'll build up momentum and I'll almost do chapter by chapter, like as if I was had a monthly not monthly, but as if I was doing a floppy comic that had to just each each issue is like a new chapter. Um, and so I did the first chapter, and I I drew the whole thing out, and I finished it, and it was it was not good enough. It was like, and and Liz and I both looked at it and we're like, this isn't quite up to scratch. Like this, you know. Wow, you um,
0: both thought that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, eh. and so I did it again, and so there's a there are two versions of chapter one that are all completed, all finished, that are just in in storage because they're just... But by the time I finished doing it a second time, I was like, oh, now I get it. And then the third attempt is the one that's in
0: When I When you said two versions, oh, that's strange. Why is he saying two versions? And then you said the third version is the one you used. Jesus, that's a lot of work.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah.
0: In fact, just before you continue, does that mean... That from this point, you've you've kept the third style all the way through, and you didn't have to go back and change anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah.
0: Because I've talked to I've talked to a number of people now when creating their long forms, and they get halfway through, and then they well they finish, and then they go back and they do the first half again.
1: Oh yeah, look, that's a, that's a bit of a trap, and and I think. Uh, as creators you know when you get to the end of a project that's when you've that's when you're ready to do it you know yeah um and definitely with home time that was the case and i set up the project to kind of work that way because i wanted to i knew it was going to take a really long time i knew it was going to be self driven and I knew because of my temperament and and the way I work that if I had to do it all in one art style, I'd I'd get really bored and and agitated with it. Yeah. So I that was one of the reasons the art style changed. There's there's a few others, but just knowing how to keep myself motivated and and wanting to learn and I love learning new processes, new materials, and things. So that was part of it as well to kind of challenge myself.
0: Just just quickly but and I, and just quickly before you continue, how did you uh, how did you do the pixelated? Was that digitally?
1: Yeah that's 100% digital. Right. Yeah. Right. So I storyboarded that with pen and paper and then I think I scanned it in and then it, it's digital. It's all digital. Yeah. Right. For sure.
0: Cuz it, it's it's still fairly similar to the to the preceding chapters and then I was just like how the hell has he done that?
1: Yeah. And so that was one thing that I had to be really careful of with and and a really conscious thing when moving art styles was that you know the characters stay on model. You yeah. know, it's not that I wanted to do a graphic novel where each chapter changes style and it also changes, like, delivery style and kind of character models. So it's not like I'm doing a style, uh, I'm not doing a chapter where it's kind of a pastiche of Rumika Takahashi and then I'm doing one where it's 100% like Urge and it looks like a Tintin and then it's, you know, it's kind of, it's more that the rendering changes. Yeah. And that's because I, I, I wanted it to be really, accessible to non-comics readers, you know? And and even the page formatting, going back to Calvin and Hobbes, the page formatting, the square format and the three three tiers of panels is from the Calvin and Hobbes collected editions mm-hmm. I had. You know, it's just replicating that. And obviously it's a very different story and there's all sorts of other things going on. But but that is just such for me, such an easy to read and accessible format. Um, that I wanted to have those formal properties locked in, and then I would go crazy with the rendering.
0: Yeah, yeah. right. right. You, you've you've got the story set up now effectively. You, you've tried two versions. You weren't quite happy. How much of how much of those two versions survived through through into the into the final version of the book?
1: Um, look, in terms of story, most of it. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the way it's drawn. And the way the story maybe is told is slightly different. So, I, you know, when I read the first rough I had or the first pass I did, um, just the art's much looser and the characters are a little bit wobblier. And um, the like things like the lettering and the panel compositions and the transitions from panel to panel, everything's just a little bit scrappy. Um, there's, it's also a lot more experimental though. There's, there's lots of sound effects in there. There's lots of like more speed lines. Things are kind of more fluid. Um, it's kind of maybe more comicky yeah, in, right. in, in those ways, um, which I only just recently went back to have a look at it cause I had kind of a, um, an exhibition of some of the works. Uh, and I was kind of quite delighted at those more playful things. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try to do more of that in my next Next comic Because with Home Time, I, you know, I stripped all of that out. I kind of did a, you know, pseudo Alan Moore sort of thing with no sound effects and no, you know, thought balloons and no captions and, you know, kind of like with a V for Vendetta, just kind of like strip it all out. And I think with, you know, with my next project, I'm throwing all that back in, <laughs> you know, cause, cause it's like, what, I just want to learn more things and new things. And it's like, well, okay, I'll do all that stuff. I deliberately didn't do in home time.
0: Well, there were, there were some points that were that, you know, that added a lot to my reading anyway, where you, you know, there was a, there was a few panels from memory in particular in the first book where there was just, just those shots of, you know, where there is well, effectively, there's no dialogue or there's no explanation. And, and but you you know you had the characters and, and it happened throughout the second book too from memory, the, the contemplativeness of the characters, uh, you know it it it, it had a, a, you know as you as you mentioned it, it's it's has a bigger effect on the story when you put things in there like that, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure, and I think I think a lot of that comes from a series that I really enjoyed called Blade of the Immortal. Um, which is a manga series by uh, Hiroaki Samurai, I think. And that's a samurai, like this fantastical samurai Such story. a good book. Oh, you've, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, man. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It, that is
0: the only, I uh, read in the last 20 years, it's the only Japanese book that I could, that I picked up and I devoured. That's
1: right. the only one. Yeah. You know, the way he manages the tension of action and, and quiet. And even in the midst of a fight, you know, he'll cut to, you know, four panel sequences of, you know, a bird in a tree or a, a leaf floating on a river and 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 to me that just had such a huge impact on on how I understood pacing to work in comics. And so that's something that I kind of carried on in home time or tried to tried to sort of bring about. Yeah, the the power of those quiet panels. You have to set them up. Yeah, you can't just have them. But definitely, yeah.
0: I remember, I remember spending you know minutes, tens of minutes trying to figure out some of the panels in Blade of the Immortal. <laughs> just, the shit was just so frenetic, and uh, I just yeah, I I know that every book I read, every book that came out, there were at least you know a handful of panels in there that I would spend you know ages on trying to work out. Is that a leg? Is that a foot? What's happening? Why is it so yeah. fast? Like you know, there was just, in just you know, uh, it just amplified my enjoyment of the book. It just such a, you know, n- aside from the characters and and the interplay and the politics of mm. of the of the of that world, which is something I, I want to bring up. There's something that I noticed in in your book fairly early on, in the first one in particular, the, the creation of the, the politics of the peaches. Now you, uh, you <laughs> yeah. allude to it like earlier on and it gets really thick in the second book. Uh, I can't remember exactly where it was in the first book, but it was, that was the first time I went, how the fuck did he create th- this? Like where the hell did this all come from? And, <laughs> I'm, and I'm talking specifically about the politics of the diff. like, n- and, and not to mention the caste systems and, and how they all interplayed like was that a was that a was that like a a a light bulb moment or did you actively from the outset go i want this and this is what it's going to resemble and this is how i want it because you know there's so many different levels in the throughout the entire book but that one in particular kind of really threw me and i thought was was ingenious uh so how did how did how did the politics for for the peaches come about
1: yeah so like i think a lot of a lot of it is this love of these imagined worlds. Like growing up, I, I was just obsessed with um, stories that were set in these imagined spaces. So, and and books that were almost field guides to imaginary lands. So yeah. things like Dinotopia is like a fantastic example, or the Gnomes series. And I just find they're such playful, inventive, beautiful kind of thought experiments almost. Of different ways that we can engage and be in the world. There's limitless possibilities for the way we configure our our lives, mm-hmm. and so so many of us, like I, I was born in Perth and I've lived here my whole life in in you know, in suburban sort of landscapes, and so, you know, I have a certain experience, but there's just such a beautiful plurality of experiences in the world, and and how can we reconfigure our society in different ways, or how might we or you know how would that happen if you were a plant like and that's sort of one of the key questions it's like if you were a fruit that grew on a tree what would what would your society look like mm. and i don't think that's a particularly profound or deep question i think it's more of a playful one yeah uh but it's you know huge the peaches are hugely influenced by may gibson and her gumnut babies and snuggle pot and, oh, right. and and massive influence there and influenced of course by the smurfs as well and it's sort of this combination of the two of of imagining you know what what are these sort of fairy creatures like that are a literal voice of the of the bushland that's there you know they they grow out of the trees and then they can talk and what would they say and 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 so that was sort of the thought experiment behind it and then the politics of it is is just around you know once you've set this thing up in motion, you know what would be some of the downsides? So I didn't want to have these these beautiful, funny, strange little creatures just all be homogenized, you know, like yeah. where they're they're all cute and goofy and fun, or they're all sort of a bit malicious and and malevolent, or they're all sort of like this. It's sort of it's like no, there's there's this massive range of opinions. and and with those different opinions come sort of consolidations of power and vying for power as well and greed and those those feelings are just so so natural that that humans have and and then we have to develop systems in order to uh, manage them yeah (laughs) and so the peaches have these systems and and how could they look and um, how might they be different and so when i had that kind of nine volume kind of plan for the home time each each volume was going to kind of look at a different iteration of, of ways we can configure, all right. consider ourselves in, as societies. So the actual second volume was going to be all about, you know, those fire rocks, the mm-hmm. stones. Yeah, It was all going to be about them and actually where the peaches go to collect them from and how they actually have their own organised society and the ones that have been co-opted by the peaches have sort of been kind of captive held captive and taken and and they've got their own elaborate systems that are completely different because what if you know as a stone you're living on literal geological timelines so so instead of you know peaches which live i think in the book they live for a few a year or something or a couple of years they've got yeah they've got a really short lifespan what if you had you know what if the members of your society lived for tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of years like how do you have to coordinate that and so I'm starting yeah, to understand
0: I, why you only have two books now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so lots of questions and thought experiments. And I just find all that stuff really fascinating.
0: Well, I must say that the, the field guide sections, I've got to be honest, some were a lot more interesting than a couple of the others. I think in the, in, in the second book, a couple of them were like, oh, you know, I just want to read about the kids. But yeah, um, yeah. earlier on, like particularly, all, all, you know, all the establishing, all the established stuff in the first book was really cool. Like a lot of it was really great, um, and and just the you know, the, and I find in 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 certain circumstances, which I'm sure there the, was the whole reason that they exist in the book, was just that 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 added bit of explanation that you wouldn't necessarily get in in comic form. But just that one page can inform a whole part of the story, the underlying story. And, and then, you know, you were able to build upon it. And I, I just, it's, it just made the whole experience of reading the book so much better.
1: Well, like that's, you know, and those end chapter notes came directly from, you know, a Watchmen like formula basically where, you know, there's these 12 chapters, each chapters, you know, roughly focuses on a different character in Watchmen. And then you've got these end in chapter kind of, in-world documents, I guess, or, yeah. or artefacts. And with Watchmen, you can happily read through Watchmen and not read those documents, and that's fine. But you read them and you get, you know, much deeper understanding of what's going on and character Absolutely. interactions and things that are alluded to or it kind of unlocks things. And and that was sort of the idea. So I've got friends who are like, yeah, I never read those end-chapter stuff. I'm not interested in it. I just like this, you know, I'll read the story. And Or, you know, the end-chapter stuff just seems like, Superfluous, or and that's totally fine. Like you can do that, but then I get kids who you know have deeply decoded the stuff that's in there, and they're like, and they'll come up to me and be like, "Hey, in this note it said this, and then I noticed in this character does this over here, and then they're wearing that thing. Are they linked?" And it's like, "Yeah, oh, it definitely man, is. a kid you know, came so up with like, that." <laughs> shit, yeah, I gotta kid, go. I gotta go read the book again. <laughs> well, the you know, and that's the thing. Kids have they've just got the time to invest. They've got the headspace. They've got they've got the actual, you know, clock time to sit and and digest this stuff and reinvest in it. And that's what that's really who that stuff's for. Because, you know, I know when I was twelve, I would have just gone over and over and over and over this oh, yeah. this work or works like this. Just finding all that stuff and figuring it out. And so it's really lovely when kids I don't expect adults to do it. I do not. Like it's it's We've got bills to pay and like groceries to pick up and like and, and lawns to mow and all that stuff. But when you're a kid, you can just get lost in these worlds, and and that's really what I wanted to create. Yeah.
0: yeah well, I, I must say that the, the two books were remarkable. I was I was very surprised when I read it, and and I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the a lot of the concepts and, and the way you separate the characters, and particularly giving each one uh, their I suppose, their own MacGuffin and, uh, you know, their own power base and the way the peaches divide them all in terms of you are, you are the master of this and you are the master of this and you are the master of this and then setting them out on their own quests. Uh, and and uh, personally, I always enjoy in, in any story, I recently realized I always enjoy the straight person. So whatever crazy things are happening around the world or around in that world, my favorite character is the person that says what are you talking about this is all make believe uh, and yeah right you know yeah. and so for uh, particularly i think in the second book when you bring up when david is how am i going to say this without spoiling
1: anything uh, when, uh well people sh- people should have read this if they're going to listen to us Jay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just loaded with giveaways so it's all right well you know the, give it away yeah, give it yeah. away all right
0: all right um, so so when when david's laid out And, uh, there's that flashback of, of him at primary school with the kids and his little toys that him and his parents created. I just, I thought that was, I I expect, I actually expected that to go a different way. And then, then you've gone another way when, but in the second book, I believe he's, he's in that, he's in that, um, situation for quite a while and, that whole, the whole first book where he's continually questioning everybody going, you're crazy. What are you doing? Why are yep. you dressing like a peach? What are you doing? Yeah. We got to get the hell out of here. I just thought that was, you know, his arc in particular was great. In the first book for me it was just unreal. Cause, and I kept expecting him to, to you know, to subvert how everyone was, was moving along. How was it creating... The individual characters' uh, sensibilities, well, the sensibility of each character, like was was it a was it a grand plan?
1: Yeah, there was there's there's a couple of things they they kind of fit into archetypes I guess that I wanted to have in the story and yeah. and these sort of archetypes that we see reoccurring in in this kind of fantasy children's fantasy stories like *Lion the witch in the wardrobe and mm-hmm. and wizard of oz and narnia uh peter pan and um alice from wonderland and, and these sorts of things and then furthermore in you know dungeon the and dragons and dungeons and dragons cartoon series was a huge influence and things like that and so you know what are these kind of character types and then you know heaps of it although not the fantastical elements a lot of a lot of home times just quite autobiographical you know about my 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 friends in primary school that experience of leaving primary school what that's like and and sort of the excitement and tension and and uh around all of that so each of the characters is sort of both this archetype and you know kind of someone i went to primary school with and you know and a facet of my own experience and and fears or anxieties or interests and so there's there's sort of those three things that each character has playing off each other. And then it was about kind of just making them, those characters bounce off each other. And and one thing that I really loved or drew a lot of inspiration from was the television series lost. And I thought that did a great job of that, of setting up these characters and then episode after episode, pairing up different ones and seeing what happened. And I always loved, you know, it's, Oh, in this episode, they're going to send like Sawyer and, and, um, hurley off together like i haven't seen those two interact what's going to happen and mm-hmm. i thought i thought that was really fun and so with home time i tried to do that as much as i could with within the within the confines of the story where it's like oh i'm going to send these two characters off now or what happens if i put these two together um and so that was really playful as a writer to kind of imagine you know what they're going to do you know how they're going to interact and solve problems together or not you know?
0: i think it's in part two where uh What's what's David's sister's uh, Lily? Lily, that's right, Lily. Uh, my, one of my favorite bits in the second book was when she, when she, uh, the, when she chops the the tree down to get the to get the scepter, the yeah. scepter, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I thought, hey man, that's what you need to do. No one can reach it. Chop the tree down. Yeah, I just yeah. thought that was. I just thought that was great. I just, you know, it was so bleeding obvious. It was one, you know one of those things where you, you never really think about it. Uh, I suppose maybe someone more intelligent would have gone, why don't they just chop the tree down? But,
1: uh, <laughs> but you was... kind of have to you kind of have to um, set up these 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 fake walls, you know. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. you point out where there's a gap and <laughs> and a character gets to go, look, oh, there's a big gap. And hopefully the reader hasn't spotted it or or you know, there's kind of where would they get an axe from? Like, the peaches don't chop down trees. They don't have axes. And so the axe is, you know, another character's scepter. So the axe is sort of washed up or, or you know, oh, transferred that's to that's right.
0: Them. That's right. They find it in the, yeah. the temple.
1: Yeah. So Lily goes through and just, like, rifles through all the, all the other scepters from the different um, guilds and kind of goes, hey, there's some useful stuff here, and, and pinches the axe. And it's like, all right, I'm taking this with me. And we're just going to chop the damn tree down. <laughs> You're listening
0: to Graphic Nature. We'll return right after this short message. Hey, thanks for listening. Hope you're enjoying the show. Please jump on Facebook and like us, as well as following us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find all the details on the website, graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. So so with all the hard work with Home Time and Home Time yeah. 2, what's the relationship between Milk Tooth and um, Home Time 2? Was it, was it a concurrent thing? Were you creating and doing and creating the, the, the workshop together. Yeah.
1: both Liz and I have both taught children's arts, you know, for, for quite a long time mm-hmm. in various um, capacities and lots of it was external. So we'd go out to schools or libraries or be at arts festivals or events or literary festivals doing kind of activation and workshops. Yeah. And Liz was really the mastermind and kind of went, well, it's kind of exhausting driving around and packing everything up and going here and going there what if everyone came to us and so she you know she crunched all the numbers and came up with this business plan and this model and this vision and was like here's what we're going to do and it's like that's brilliant and so we did it and you know she it's it's really her her vision and business and and I teach the comic side of things there which I really love doing and Liz teaches all the painting and sculpture and Craft and design, design work.
0: Well, it sounds like you got a flight.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, in some ways, definitely. <laughs> her stuff's a lot more involved. Well, you know, comics is really involved, but my materials list is like paper, pens, pencil. <laughs> Sometimes a little bit of modelling clay, and that's it. And whereas her stuff's like just wild and inventive. Every term, it's really out there. So we started running that, and and it feeds into it, like. The comics, teaching comics makes you really deconstruct comics uh, much more rigorously, I think, mm-hmm. or at least for me. For me, it does. It makes me really f- try to figure out the mechanics and the why and the how and and working with kids and helping them bring their, make their comics more legible. I mean, and that's most of what teaching comics is. It's like, how do you make this more legible? How do you make this more understandable? Because actually making a comic... When you're a child, it's, it's, well, every child can do it. Yeah. But but lots of them are very, very difficult to read. You know, they they require the child to sit next to you and actually just interpret it for you. So it almost (laughs) becomes more like a, I don't know, like a visual prompt for their storytelling. Yeah. And it's like, well, how do you progress beyond that where the author doesn't, the maker doesn't need to sit next to their comic and explain it. And and so just.
0: What's the general age that you'd be teaching comics to?
1: Yeah, mostly primary school age, okay. and then we have you know uh, some high school students. And actually, just last term, my oldest student kind of stopped coming, and and he was driving himself. You know, he was he, he just turned eighteen, or was just about to turn eighteen, and was driving himself to lessons. So it is it is more focused <laughs> on primary and, and a lower high school. Yeah, and and some of that's just about time. I think where once you're in high school, um, you know most high schools. School students are, have the option of doing art in school. They're just incredibly busy, so the kind of extracurricular stuff tends to drop away a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, our main focus is primary school. Yeah, what a shame. It is. Yeah, I think so. I, I, yeah, it, it'd
0: be nice if there was a you know whether whether it be a a, a national thing or just a, a program that would teach kids, because because I, I you know I, I agree with you. I think the 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 only real way to understand comics on a greater level is is by by as you've said so succinctly uh, by deconstructing them i found this for myself it's one thing to read about comics and the way they're created it's a completely different beast to actually create one and you know uh, and i've said many times uh, being such, uh, being a reader for such a long time and then saying well f- just 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 as a as an exercise i'll actually create one Whether anybody sees it or not is not the point. The point is to actually do it. So when I'm talking to someone like yourself or to people who are actually makers, so I can understand and have a better perspective when it comes down to understanding what you're talking about or, you know, these things that on some level might well be intrinsic because I've been reading for so long, but I don't really understand until I've put it together. You know, there's a a small amount of people who might understand just by reading
1: yeah and i think there's i think that applies to really everything you know there's sort of an embodied yeah well oh sorry not to not to un- undercut what you're saying but it's <laughs> no. like there's like an embodied knowledge that comes with when you actually do something mm. so and i think that you know applies with sports you know you, you could be a really great you know fan of a sport but if you've never actually played it do you, do you understand that thing? Like, can you actually understand that thing? I don't know. Like, (laughs) it's just a very different kind of way of, of um, engaging with, with something. And like you said, you don't have to become brilliant at it. You don't have to, you know, share it with anyone, but, but if, if you've got that interest in something, then even just giving it a shot is like really, really great. And, And I think you pointed out something that's really interesting is that lots of People and lots of kids come to my classes who love reading comics, but the actual act of making comics is completely different. Yeah, like reading comics is very quick; <laughs> it's incredibly quick process. It's it's quite kinetic, it's quite fun, it's it's you know enjoyable and and so on and so forth. But the making of comics is kind of almost the opposite in lots of ways. Like it can be very slow, it can be very laborious, it can be quite tedious at times, mm. and you know, there's a there's a great kind of energy that comes with comics like the Dogman series, and I think he's done def, um has done a great job in encouraging like this, this resurgence and interest in young people to make comics, and has lowered that barrier of entry for them. Because, like, and he does it deliberately, where the the comics are quite crudely drawn, yeah, and and then there's kind of backup stories that are even cruder in Captain Underpants, but that's deliberate. That's to say to people to the children you can do this like the spelling might be wonky the panels are all awkward you could probably do this and and lots of kids kind of jump on board and I think there's a beauty to that sort of that almost punk rock comic that I see kids making but then once you if you want to move into the next kind of level of polish or you know you know start getting perspective and shadows and lighting and anatomy it's actually like so many skills that you need to stack on all at once that for some people it, it can be really daunting and overwhelming. And when they're not making the progress that they'd like, it can be quite discouraging. Um, <laughs> Amen to and, that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's like anything. You have to give yourself permission to to not be very good. Like if tomorrow I decided I wanted to learn the cello, I'd have to be really kind to myself and be like, yeah, I'll probably sound like crap for like a couple of years before I... Start being pleased with it. I think, and yeah, I think that yeah.
0: that's that's probably one of the biggest hurdles. And I know personally is probably one of the biggest reasons why I took so long to actually get to a point where I even felt comfortable going. I'm going to create a comic, and I'm 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 even going to go so far as to say I will draw it myself. Just yeah, you know, and and, and you know, and how looking at some of the the prelim thumbnails that I did, I'm just like, how the hell am I going to do that hospital bed? How the hell am I going to do that? You know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 you're right in saying it's, that's probably the biggest hurdle for a lot of people. Sorry, is just, you know, I'm not that I'm really not that good. You know, I don't know how I could pull this off. And, and, and just even from the, and that's just, let's just say that's just from the arts perspective alone. And then, you know, you throw in uh, narrative, your, your skill with, with, you know, putting narrative together it's it's a wonder I'm I'm still I sometimes figure it, it's a wonder that comics get made at all, with uh with just the amount of oh, the amount of uh, yeah. required um, skills I guess for the for lack of a better term required the skills required to actually put uh, put one thing together as as a lone creator especially
1: it's it's staggering and and it, it really is not to, and I completely agree with you and I think people take for granted that the, the you know yeah i often hear and and i tend to liken it myself as well to film production and people understand in film production generally you know there's a costume designer there's a set designer there's a caterer there's a director there's a writer probably multiple writers there's a casting agent there's the actors you know if you're making your own comic you, you need to do all of those things and if you're you know writing a prose novel you can get away with you know, it's a clunky, lame bit of text, but you know, David walked into the cafe. You know, and yeah. and the reader fills in the gaps. But if you want to have David walking into the cafe, yeah, how do you do it <laughs> in a comic? You've got to do. You've got to sort <laughs> yeah. out so much stuff. There's so much stuff you need to organise, and it is like you're running a, a one-person film production studio, and it's um
0: because it, that's really the only way I could really think about it when when it came to here's a story I've written, and I'm going to base it on that, and then I'll fill in the gaps. And then you can go, well, how many pages, you know, kind of like what you did, but in reverse, I had very little to start with. Not so much as not nine, you know, nine books worth. And then, you know, piece it together. This is the amount of story. This is what I, these are the amount of pages I'm going to need. Cause I've mapped it out. So it's 12 pages and in every page, this is going to happen. And then breaking it down to, and you know, and once that's broken down, then break down every individual page and then break down each individual panel and then seeing how it works and then, you know, having to take that one out and put this in. And it was, uh, uh, as, as, as fun as it was putting together, it, it just like mentally, it takes a lot of work and, and I'm not even anywhere near what you're saying, casting or costume design, (laughs) set design, you know, this was just, this is what I want to happen.
1: Yeah. There's a lot to juggle. There's a lot, lot to juggle. And I think, yeah that it's overwhelming like the amount the different skill sets you need to accumulate and then it just comes you know there's things just Mm -hmm. like perspective how good's your perspective not understanding of perspective because you know students will be like i want to kind of show it from up here and i've got you know they're like i've literally got no idea how to do it i want the camera (laughs) to be up there how do i do that and and it's like okay well you know i know how to do it it's like here's here's the thing and it's just yeah staggering absolutely staggering
0: i I, I suppose the 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 best thing that comes out of it is as you say the understanding of once you've figured it out the mere fact of of sitting down and doing it and doing the work and putting it together even though it's unfinished it's given me a greater appreciation of everything that's out there like it was easy for me many many years ago to read something go that's shit or what's that that guy doesn't know how to draw but you know, and, and I'm talking, you know, and th- and I'm just disparaging people who are in the, you know, in the American commercial industry who are getting paid big dollars. And I'm looking at them going, whatever, that's shit. That guy doesn't know how to draw. But, you know, sitting down and actually being faced with the same, uh, with the same challenge of, of, you know, an indie creator or, or a professional creator or a maker, it's... No, actually, this takes a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of brain power. It, it really rounded out my own perspective when it came to whether it be independent comics, commercial comics, uh, international comics, which often have a different language when it comes to, you know, the visuals and the way that they write and the way the story and the narrative work. So, yeah, I you know, it's 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 huge and I'm just going to say it again, it just it really changed the way I looked at comics, particularly when I started thinking about creating my own. Yeah.
1: No, I just agree.
0: <laughs> because I love the medium so much and I have for so very long, I really do think it's important that, you know, Milktooth not only survives but thrives and, and other programs and organizations like Milktooth proliferate through the country and actually get kids. You know, it, it's more about um, uh, promoting the medium uh, as, as just – you know, like you would TV or video games, but you know what I'm getting at.
1: I think so. I think it's sort of maligned to a huge extent, and um, I think it's getting a lot better because I think educators are really starting to cotton on to this idea that um, comics are a fantastic kind of gateway yeah. to literacy because they they are really accessible to pre-literate people or people who are really struggling with with reading comprehension because there's so much visual. There's so much visual unpacking that can happen. And so I think they're being used increasingly for those purposes. And and for me that's great. And I'd love to see more of that within the education sector. But I want to see that then married with the next thought is that that comics are not just for for early learning. Comics are also, you know, comics can follow you through life. So a comic an engagement with the comics medium is is one Mm. where it's lifelong. And so I don't I really bristle against this notion that literacy starts with picture books, which are primarily images with a few bits of text. Then onto chapter books, which are, you know, mostly text with some accompanying pictures. And you know, we need to graduate, and eventually the end goal is reading, sort of, you know, War and Peace or something.
0: Is there there must there must be a uh, like a text-based lobbying group that just you know that just browbeats librarians all around the world that says, no, you, you must only house books that only have text in them.
1: Yeah, and I think librarians are really quickly understanding. Librarians are fantastic because they're they're at the front of, they're on the front line hmm. of like children's literacy and children's engagement with literature. And so they're, they're some of our strongest and best advocates and they're seeing, they can see, oh, and they get the stats as well. Like, oh, our manga collection is like 80% always on loan. Uh, that's like the highest percentage of of any yeah. of our genres or, or areas. Or, uh, what's driving this? You know, like there's obvious demand, and so you know we're seeing increasing investment in graphic novel collections in public and and uh, pro- you know private libraries in schools and things. That is amazing, um, and that's fantastic. And so I think if if we can marry that with really strong. Um, education as well like education tool sets for teachers and training for teachers to be able to then use comics and if we get comics on reading lists as well like so and then there's curriculum really strong curriculum support and lesson plans you know and we get lots you know I'd love to ideally see lots of Australian comics and comics from sort of our time zone region yep. so you know up through Asia because they are you know nearest nearest neighbors if we get that sort of reading list on For schools, you know, not just primary schools, but high schools as well get really solid works I think that'd just be fantastic for comics in australia.
0: I believe that I have read an article where there was there was one or two australian schools who did list did list a uh, particular graphic novel for uh, their year 11 or year 12 English classes I believe I, I could be wrong
1: oh, but Chris
0: warned that it's just very recent like in the last year or two or something like that but yeah it, it's mm. you know there's there's plenty of stuff out there you know it have got a whole mm. world's worth of of um, of sequential art and visual narrative and I just yeah I, I, I agree I, I think it's there, there's there has to be a. It's literally the only way, just through education. So the only way I can think of that that we can, you know, as a as a group, as a community, get comics not only to lose the stigma that they have, but also to see people how enriching they can be in the stories that can be told through comics that you just can't you can't mm. tell in any other way.
1: Yeah, and I think you know I think it's going to take a long time, and I think it's going to take a good solid many more kind of breakthrough comics or graphic novels to break through in readerships that are you know young adult or adult audiences you know you get the occasional one that does break out and crosses over like Tan's the arrivals an example which you know everyone loves and enjoys and is you know a masterpiece um my favorite thing is monsters has done some pretty good numbers and uh, was it Sabrina, the Booker Prize-nominated one from a few years ago? Like that had really good crossover media. Um, I know Mandy Ords uh, most recent work was mm-hmm. um, was it nominated yeah, right. for the Stella Prize. Mm-hmm. So you know, if we can get more Rung uh, wins like that, that can that that I think that's really essential for us as an as an industry kind of building more of a yeah. an acceptability. But it'll be, yeah, it, it takes, those things are just like lightning strikes. They're just, just you can't manufacture them. And so we just need a lot of lightning strikes, it's basically. Pl-
0: there's plenty of time. <laughs> we'll, we'll...
1: And and look, you know, like we're getting this re- we're getting this readership that's coming through. So what I'm really excited about is, you know, when we see the Dav Pilkey and the Rainer generation, once they're hitting their 20s and 30s, it's going to be a completely different landscape. I I think, you know, by that time, so many of those kids read, read those books, and hopefully they'll be able to find works that carry them on. And for them, comics is something completely different to what it was for us. And I think that's exciting and thrilling. And I'm just buzzing at the thought of that generation starting to make stuff. Yeah.
0: I feel the same way, you know, I'm all, I'm, I can't wait. I'm all for, I hope my daughter's generation, like you say, get to the point where it's not even a thing. It's just like, yeah, I just read a comic book. Oh, and, and this one won a, won this award.
1: Yeah. It's interesting times ahead. That's for sure. Uh,
0: so what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I've got a couple of um, pictures that I'm putting together for mm-hmm. two new series. Um, one of them's the working title is Bilbicans, and it's for a slightly younger readership. It's probably in that kind of graphic yep. novel format, like a scholastic sort of format, like um, ta- Talgamized books. And it's about, set again in Perth, uh, and it's set in sort of like a busy, busy town, Richard Scarry style world. And it's about this Bilby character who's starting primary school or starting a new primary school and she's just kind of like a bit kinetic and spunky and just some of her challenges and adventures that she goes on so that i'm really excited about that it's it's shorter it's more lighthearted. there's still you know like really a lot of emotional resonance and and quite surprisingly so for me writing it and drafting it but that's that's really fun and then another project i'm working on is called lunar express and that is for slightly older, yeah. like it's a YA demographic. And that one is about a group of friends who've just graduated from high school and they've all got sort of su- like superpowers and which is kind of normalised. And none of them are superheroes. Yeah, right. They've just got these weird powers. And one of the friends, the main character, she kind of doesn't know what she wants to do. So she's really at a loss. Like her friends have gone off to uni or they've gone off to workplaces and she is a, a bicycle courier for her parents. Oh, uh, nice patisserie and she's and she's just kind of like at a loss so it's it's kind of a little bit Kiki's delivery service meets like a little bit Sailor Moon-ish so like quite a different register to, to the other two and so yeah working on those two I've got this idea of a video game that I'm wow. toying with making so quite a small thing but I thought it was going to be a, a comic and now I'm like actually I think this is like a little kind of video game where you go around this town. It's it's called Welcome to Whispering, and I did it as a little zine, yep. like a D&D module, and I was turning it into a graphic novel, and I was like, this kind of doesn't capture the playfulness or the exploration that I really had in the original text. And then I was like, oh, it could be a little video game where you walk around this town and I'll illustrate it. And um, So that might be a project that I'm going to work on. You,
0: you, you mentioned that you had the, the two pitches. Uh, are you having any involvement from Top Shelf? Considering that they published the Hometime books,
1: yeah. So not at the moment because I'm still drafting them up. But Top Shelf, you know, like I, I send them stuff and and we're in conversation about things. But I don't know where these two will wind up or who where the best home for them is necessarily. But Top Shelf have just been like insanely supportive of Hometime, and I'm forever grateful of that. How did
0: how did that relationship come about? Because I know that I know that Chris Gooch, Pat Grant, like there's been quite a few Aussie cats who have been been published by top shelf how did your relationship start with top shelf
1: yeah so mine was really by chance so i was suit the supernova comics convention was coming to perth one year and i saw ted adams was listed as a uh, a visiting you know one of the one of the creators that they've flown over and he at the time was editor-in-chief at idw yeah right and he was doing portfolio or like portfolio assessments and
0: oh, that's right because top shelf is owned by idw aren't they or is it the other way around?
1: Well, at the time, they, they weren't. At the time, they weren't. But uh-huh. but IDW, yeah. And so I put my name down and I, I knew my work wasn't right for them. But I just figured when else? Yeah. For international listeners who might be thinking, oh, well, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Every
0: convention we go
1: to, they're there. Yeah. yeah Ted's there at every one. <laughs> and everyone's, yeah, this is like an insane rarity. Like, uh, I, I don't mm-hmm. remember this ever happening. Yeah that I was aware of where an editor would come and do an open portfolio. So so I just put my name down and we had a lovely yarn for, for ages like uh, 45 minutes an hour or something. And we went through my portfolio. And wow. Yeah, it was it was kind of chilled. It was like a chilled out day. There weren't too many people. And so we were just yarning and you know, and, he, and I showed him home time and, and he was asking heaps of questions about it and really interested and um, really gracious. And then at the end he was sort of like, oh look, your work's not quite right for us, but do you mind if I send it on to a friend? And I thought it was just a really, I thought it was just a nice letdown, where it was like yeah, to yeah. soften the blow. And I <laughs> kind of went, yeah, sure, I'll just email it to you. Zoom, off it goes, and yeah, let's just keep in touch. And then I think it was the next day I got a email from Chris Starus, and he was like, my friend just sent me this graphic novel. I'm really keen on Wow. Talk. And um, and then I think the next day we had a Skype or a Zoom meeting that was oh, it would have been Skype back then that went for like three hours maybe, and he just went through everything. Wow! And, and then the next day I had a contract.
0: That's amazing. So it's a great story.
1: Yeah, it's an, inc- it's, but it's one of those just fluky, freaky ones, because I'd pitched it to a whole bunch of Australian publishers by that point over a couple of years, and no one was able to take it on. And there was a whole variety of reasons. And I think they're all really legitimate and, and they make a lot of sense. But at the time, you know, it was confusing and, and hurtful because I didn't really understand how the publishing industry worked. What,
0: can you, can, like, without singling out publishers, what, what were some of the reasons?
1: So just to clarify as well, I was looking at book publishers because what I really wanted was for this to be in bookstores and I wanted like distribution. I understood I couldn't do distribution and that's what a publisher would right. do for me. And I really wanted book distrib- bookstore distribution.
0: And so you're looking so, at places like... Alan and Unwin and all those those types of publishers you mean.
1: Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Okay, so some of the things that were going against it I was I had never had anything published before, so you know, it's mm-hmm. always a risk. It's a huge project, so there's a the cost of yep. production is just massive. It's a weird story, like it doesn't fit within a clear age readership, mm-hmm. which for them for their marketing teams was like, "Who do we target this at?" Like, <laughs> there's a kid who has his arm burnt off. <laughs> and undergoes horrific injuries but they're like 12 years old and and so for them it was really confusing where it's like usually books for 12 year olds feature characters who are 14 right right? and books for 14 year olds feature characters that are 18 because everyone wants to read a little bit up whereas this is a book about 12 year olds it's kind of for like I, I hate to say it but it's for everyone because I think when i was 12 i always felt the texts were kind of talking down yeah. to me and or depictions of childhood were always really kind of sanitized and a bit yeah. silly and it didn't actually capture the complexities of our relationships that were really happening
0: so so basically what you're telling me is the market is that some of these companies didn't want to do their job <laughs>
1: Well, it would have made their job really tricky And it was just a liability, yeah. it's a risk You know, their business that, that, that they is... they've got to take care of their bottom line And yeah, so so there was a couple of, even one of them was like This is so weird, like so Australian this Wow, is too Australian. really? I know, and I was like blown away Yeah, I was like, wow, okay And too Perth specific oh, as well They were like, this is really Perth based And I'm like "Can yep. you, you know what, can you tell me um, off air which vouchers they were? That's uh, ridiculous okay. I, and I don't I don't have any award um, against them. But when I had Cyrus on the phone, all of those things were huge ticks for him. So he was like, oh, you've never been published before? This is so cool. I get to be the first person to publish you. Oh, it changes art styles every chapter? That's awesome. Great. It's set in Perth. I've never heard of Perth before. How exciting. So, like, he just put a tick in all of those boxes that were liabilities. See, this is else. the
0: saddest story I've heard. Because (laughs) you've got, you know, we've got so, and and again, we've got so many talented people in this country and you've got these publishers who have all the might in the world who are like, no, it's too Australian. Oh no, it's a bit too weird. I just, I find that, I find that so, I find it depressing really that, you you know, you have to go outside of Australia to get a look in and, and everyone's going, wow, that's all amazing. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's so yeah yeah
1: Yeah, it's funny isn't
0: it i could think of a few other words
1: (laughs) well it all worked out in the end (laughs) yeah well (laughs) i'm I'm, I'm happy (laughs) at the end but you know yeah it was confusing and demoralizing and i was i was kind of looking down the barrel of um self-publishing which would have been disastrous because i you know i don't have that sort of um business sense i don't have that sort of distribution i don't have the gumption needed to all the contacts needed to get things out there, it would have been a, just a disaster. And I'm so glad I didn't have to go down that route. I, I Hats off to anyone who can navigate those systems because I think they're hugely empowering and, and amazing. Oh. Um, if you can and like kick-starting things and yeah. all of that, I just think it's amazing. I just know I would drop the ball at every step of that. I'm good at sitting in a studio and working and teaching workshops. I'm not good at those. So you
0: need a things. business manager so, is what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I definitely do. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's unreal. What year was that when you got all that happening? Was that what early two thousands, oh, late two thousands?
1: No, no, that was so. Oh goodness, I'm so bad with. Well, I'm just lines. thinking
0: like when the book came out. Uh, so obviously, it would have been. A, was the book finished when they
1: saw it? No, I had two. I I went around to publishers with two finished chapters and a and a storyboards. And some of them said like, oh, it looks all right, but can you finish two more chapters before coming back to us and then we'll reassess it. So that was like they wanted like 120 finished yeah, art right. pages before they would. And it's like, wow, you guys will like sign off on a picture book and give me probably a similar advance for like <laughs> with, with just a script and an outline.
0: Really? Maybe I should get into picture books. Oh, you
1: know, <laughs> you'd, uh, you'd, you'd be doing all right. You'd, you'd be doing similarly with far less Jeez. work. Uh, yeah so like from in from the initial idea to the finished book coming out was about 10 years. Whoa. I'm so, just you, but
0: um, that's what I mean I'm trying to figure out whether whether your meeting with Top Shelf preceded all these uh, all these other crew getting um getting a look in.
1: Oh uh, well Pat had already published Blue with Blue with Christaris by oh, that okay. point. Okay right
0: yeah. Yeah
1: so that came well before and then just in this year or last year rather yeah, Chris Gooch's right.
0: Under on un, Under Earth. Under
1: Earth. Right. Pat Grant's um, oh, His
0: new one, The Grot. Yeah, the I've Grot got that that's on my read. And Home
1: Time Two. Those three all came out within sort of six months from oh, Top look 10, at that Which is really kind of crazy. And it's just a chance. Like I think all three of us made these relationships independently. Well I of I, one no, another. I'm gonna take this yeah.
0: out, but I know for a fact that Pat Grant helped Chris get his yeah. Oh yeah. well there you go. And he he wrote right. he wrote a letter. Oh, was that a letter? Actually, I can't... Yeah, yeah, it was a letter of support from Pat. Like, help yeah. this kid. Yeah. He's good. Which, you know, which is there's nothing wrong with that. Hell, you know, if you know, no, that's and, great. Um...
1: That's and we all need to help. We should all be helping each other, you know? Um, because it's hard. And <laughs> it's really hard. And, you know, we're not denying one another opportunities by creating them for one another. You know, it's not like yeah. Oh, I
0: agree. It's, it's, I agree. I think I think, you know, it's don't get me wrong, it's tough, and there are some cats out there that are working extremely hard, particularly in the indie area. Uh, and, and, you know, it's I, I see some really slick-looking stuff, and I immediately kind of, my, you know, my shoulders go up, and I went, oh, I don't know. That looks, you know, it looks too commercial. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're pushing it in, in ways right. that you probably shouldn't if you want the right type of support. But I guess not everybody's looking for the same thing. But, you know, for the most part, you know, I, I love going to some of these, some of the conventions that we've been having here in Melbourne over the last few years or excluding last year, but the independent conventions where everybody's there and pushing their wares. And in fact, I met, uh, I met Owen, Owen Heitman. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. He did. Uh, I saw he did the lettering in, in the first book. Did he, I can't remember if he did anything in the second book. Uh, second second
1: book, so. book. Yeah. So second book, I had a grant and was able to like bring on a crew to help push it nice. over the line. Which was fantastic. So, yeah, there's there's a whole bunch of crew that helped make that book a lot quicker. And it was, I, I felt I was able to do that in the second book because with the first book, I was able to give them the first book and just go, here's what I need you. This is the bit I yeah, need right. you to do. Whereas with the first book, I was still figuring yeah, it out yeah, for yeah. myself. So, there's no way I could have brought help on. But yeah, that was essential in how the second book got done, I think in two and a half years rather than the first one.
0: Like <laughs> yeah, years. it makes a big difference.
1: You know? Oh, yeah. And I'd like, you know, in the future, I want to have. I want to do more collaborative stuff like that where the labor's divided a bit more.
0: Campbell, it's been it's been unreal to talk to you. Thanks so much. Um, thanks heaps, mate, for for, you, for being so gracious and giving and giving us your time.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, that's the end of this episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you could please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use, it'd be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. Uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, for for more information about the show, visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your web browser. GraphicNature.media. Thanks again, and uh, until next time, enjoy the comics you read and read the comics you enjoy. Credits! Written, produced, edited, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation and additional production, Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham versus Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.